for club and you ain't in it full of psychopaths who believe in eugenics it's an evil club and you ain't in it full of psychopaths who believe in eugenics it's an evil club and you ain't in it all right welcome everybody this is the reality czars and we're your hosts Nate and Tony hello and dude we got the coolest guest on in the world we got the great Scott Horton um Scott there's nobody in the world that doesn't know who you are, but do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, I guess, and where that people can find you? Sure. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, and I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com. And I do the Scott Horton show and anti-war radio and all that's at scotthorton.org. And I wrote the books Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Awesome, brother. And I listened to your show today. Uh, are you are you still doing a drive for the radio? Do you want to talk about that at all? If people want to donate? Uh, yeah, KPFK. I'm on the radio in uh, Los Angeles on KPFK 90.7 FM, and they're doing a fun drive. It's also our fun drive right now at antiwar.com as well, as long as you're asking. Hell yeah. Uh, and we're going to do one at the Institute here in a couple of weeks, as soon as antiwar.com's is over. <laughs> Hell yeah. So, that season, got to do it. Yeah. yeah. Scott, we are so happy to have you on, man. I got so many questions and you, you, you are the man. So well, <laughs> I want to talk with you guys. Yeah, man. I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Cause I mean, that's the only thing anybody wants to talk about right now. It's the biggest thing going on in the news and it's got all the, you know, little ladies scared and, you know, every, you know, all the normie folks scared. Um, I, it got myself scared a little like today. I was like, I hope Scott is going to white pill me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll do my best. I mean, honestly, I really don't think there's going to be uh, an attack. I mean, predictions are predictions. So what are you going to do? I mean, I'm not in control yeah. of the future, so I can't really do anything about it. But I don't really believe that Russia was ever really gearing up to invade in the first place. I think yeah. that what you're seeing, you know, you can call it coercive diplomacy. I think they were kind of building up their forces and doing their exercises, maybe a little bit heavier than usual. And the Biden government freaked out. And the Russians, this is, you know, last fall, beginning in November. And the Russians said, what? We're not going to invade. But as long as you're worried about it, we actually have some demands we would like for you to consider, you know. So, mm -hmm. you know, they've denied they're going to invade, but it's a latent threat at least. You know, they're building up some forces there. And yet their demands are eminently reasonable. Um, you know, they're not going to get the, you know, uh, furthest position that they've staked out, which is, you know, they want a new treaty promising never to bring Ukraine into NATO. They want yeah. America to pull its military forces back to the where they were in 1997 before NATO expansion began, yeah. which actually is what Bill Clinton promised. Yes, we're expanding NATO, but don't worry, we're not going to expand our military forces into the new NATO countries. Well, they started lying, you know, they broke that promise immediately. But, um, <clears throat> you know, Putin knows he's not going to get those things. But he's also yeah. saying he wants assurances that we're not going to put medium range missiles in Ukraine. And Biden has said, look, we have that no one whatsoever putting those missiles in. <laughs> I mean, we're putting, they're putting in much lower level military you know, equipment, they're giving shoulder fired anti-tank missiles, Javelin anti-tank missiles, which are a step up from a toe, but it's still um, nothing like putting in 
you know, missiles that can carry nuclear warheads or anything like that. So I had a quick question. Oh, yeah, but anyway, just to, to sum real yeah, quick, yeah. Biden's backing down, essentially. Biden is, is or uh, even backing down in the right way to put it. He's clarifying that the things that Putin is most worried about that will bring Ukraine into NATO and or that will put medium range missiles into Ukraine or into Poland or the Czech Republic or pardon me, Romania or uh, Poland um, is uh, none of those things are going to happen anyway. So we're happy to give you assurances like that all day. And in their written response to Russia's demands, they even said, let's set up a new verification regime so you can make sure that there's no tomahawks being installed in Romania and Poland. See, a year ago, Donald Trump ripped up the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that kept medium-range nukes out of Europe. Yeah. So now, are we going to put them in or not? And Putin is saying he wants ironclad guarantees we're not. And Biden is saying, sure. So, yeah, there's still outstanding issues, but those are the biggest ones. So I don't think, I really don't think that the Russians are going to invade. My only caveat to that is that Colonel Douglas McGregor thinks that they are. And he blames the U.S. I just saw him on Tucker Carlson an hour ago. And he said, listen, you know, we, there's no reason in the world we should have hostilities with Russia. There's no reason in the world we should have a hostile relationship with Russia in any way or should be taking them on. However, we are. And Biden is pushing his luck and pushing all of our luck big time here. And he thinks that Russia is going to invade Ukraine in response. I, I really don't think that that's going to happen. Uh, and in fact, the more confident the uh, Biden administration is that it is going to happen, the less I believe it. I and mean, that's pretty yeah. much just going with my gut and, you know, using the force and trusting my feelings kind of thing. But I don't really know. But uh, I just seen, look, here, there's a few reasons why in 2015, when the far east of Ukraine voted in a plebiscite to join the Russian Federation, Putin told them no. And one of them was because it's a bunch of old people who are going to collect pensions and be a massive net drain on the treasury rather than a benefit. The second thing is the industry in Eastern Ukraine is really run down and decrepit. I mean, they have some rocket engine factories and some helicopter factories that are some high tech stuff, but much of it is run down old crap that would require incredible investments to make it competitive uh, in the global market for sure. And then also right now, the country is pretty much divided, east and west, Ukrainian and Russian speaking, and you know, Ukrainian nationalist versus you know Russian leaning. And it's true, as some of the people worried about the war say, that and not not American hawks, but people like McGregor who are worried that it's going to happen, but think it is going to happen, uh, say that. Um, you know, the, the moves taken this year by the Ukrainian government against the Russian-leaning parties has essentially nullified that aspect where Putin could rely on having about half the country like him, more mm -hmm. or less, you know? Whereas yeah. now the government is kind of making that point moot. However, what's the opposite of that, though? If Putin invades and takes the entire eastern half of the country all the way to the Dnieper River there. Then all that's left of Ukraine is Ukrainian speakers dominated by far-right reactionaries, mm -hmm. you know, against him. 
And when I say far right in Ukraine, I don't mean like everybody to the right of Mao Zedong is supposedly a fascist like it is in America right now. But I mean, like real Hitler loving Nazis over there, the proud grandsons of the Galatian SS from World War II, in fact. So um, now I don't, I don't think that that is the kind of outcome that Putin would see as a major improvement. And as much as people say that the guy's a total psychopath, I think of him much more as a sociopath. In other words, what I mean by that is that he's a calm, rational, cold-blooded, calculating guy who does not get emotional, does not get upset. He's not a psycho who would like do crazy things and act in crazy ways. He never does. Everything he does is extremely carefully calculated, doesn't get upset. You know, reporters over the years, they go, oh, Dick Cheney said, you're the biggest bitch in the world. What are you going to do? You know, and he goes, well, listen, you know, we have some disagreements with our American partners, but we'd like to work very hard on getting along with them better. And what, you know what I mean? He just doesn't want to fight. He's I'm always phased. walking that way. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so now you could just say, well, yeah, he's a cold-blooded killer. And, and so, you know, he doesn't get upset. But to me, that counts for a lot. Biden does get upset. And I worry about that, you know, to be perfectly frank. And I think yeah. that if, if, if Vladimir Putin was the kind of guy who got really angry when people stepped on his toes, we'd have had a nuclear war already. Americans have been stepping on his toes for 20 years. You know, you know it shows more strength to be calm when when someone yells at you like that because then they control you. Like Trump was a big baby, and so right. is Biden. He's like, look here, fat. <laughs> you let's That's do a push-up contest. Well, like, look, he just reacted out. against. Yeah, just uh, the other day he reacted against Lester Holt. But like, how dare you question me about inflation? You're trying to be a wise guy, trying to you know come at me sideways and put me on the spot here. And it's like, look, you're the president. Inflation's above 7%, pal. People yeah. deserve an answer, you know? And he acts like, oh, yeah, how dare you? You know, he was that the he guy he called the, they do in Ukraine. Was that the guy he called the son of a bitch or was that somebody else that? No, that was somebody else. Okay. <laughs> no, Lester Holt is like, you know, the most White House friendly, most Democratic friendly nightly news anchor of, of them all, you know? I'm not, I forget anymore whose competition is on the nightly news. I don't watch the nightly yeah. news much. In fairness to him, he needed a nap. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, the guy's really not up to it, is he? No. Oh. No. Yeah. But uh, look, I think um, I could be proven wrong. The White House says tomorrow's the big day that Russia's going to invade, you know? But I don't think so. I mean, look, the news today was that they're pulling some forces back. So Which did is, you hear about all, that, you know, where they said um, Wednesday was going to be the day? Mm -hmm. Wasn't that somebody that was some sort of like Russian minister said, uh, Wednesday, we're going to we're going to come and attack or something like that. Did you hear that? And then I didn't hear that. OK, and then admit, he I, said, like, I don't. Then he said it's a figure of speech or something like that. And he tried to correct himself. Oh, no. OK, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. No, this is the headline on antiwar.com right now. Is that That's actually the president of Ukraine. Oh, okay. Mocking, he was being sarcastic and mocking the Americans, saying, oh, the Russians are going to invade on Wednesday, I'm being told. See how that's like he's being funny. And in fact, the, the president of Ukraine used to be a comedian. That's how he got the job, was he played the president on a comedy show. And people were like, oh, we kind of like him. Let's just, you know, like they like the John Stewart or Dave Smith or something like that, you know. Um, I mean, we are living well, in idiocracy. I mean. We absolutely are, yeah. yeah. So, um. 
So that was what, and then he clarified his comment that, look, man, I was just being sarcastic about what the Americans had been saying about how it's imminent, it's imminent, it's imminent, it's imminent, it's going to be this week. You know, these people never have to eat crow or say that they're sorry. And of course, if Russia doesn't invade at all, they'll say, yeah, that's because we made them back down because of how tough we are and all the threats we made and all these things, you know. <laughs> and the reality is that, look, if Russia wanted to conquer eastern Ukraine, they could do so. Yeah. You know. And whatever American sanctions against them and all that is not going to dissuade them. So I had a, another question is I, I just heard that I heard this today, uh, but I heard this from a right wing source. You always have to be careful with those. They're always pushing, you know, war, but uh, that those two Ukrainian are um, like two Ukrainian factions, Eastern Ukrainian factions uh, were trying to petition Putin again to be a, uh, did you hear that? I uh, like it was it's an actual like communist party, I think, is one of them. And then it's a different party. It's like a Russian party in eastern Ukraine. They're trying to get annexed again. They're trying to be re recognized. I hadn't by heard that, but that, I would I would not be surprised by that. In fact, the, the version of that I heard was that in the Russian Duma, someone had sponsored a bill saying, let's do this. But that doesn't re really mean anything. Right. That's like the House yeah. of Representatives wants to. The president's going to decide this, not them, you know, kind of thing. Um as far as the far eastern, you know, Donbass region, as far as them asking again, I mean, they're not going to be the ones calling that shot. That's going to be up to Putin. And to tell you the truth, I mean, you know, never mind half the country and marching all the way to Odessa and all this. But when it comes to the Donbass region, Donetsk and Luhansk there in the far east of Ukraine, he could pretty much just pull out a Sharpie and say, this is the new border of the Russian Federation now, and there's nothing anybody could do about it. Yeah. He had, you know, he could essentially walk his men in there and take it over, probably, without, you know, necessarily rolling a bunch of tanks across in a aggressive invasion force, because it's already kind of a semi-autonomous zone anyway. But I don't think he's going to do that. He could have done it in 2015. Why is he going to do it now, seven years later? You know, was that under Trump? Was that the first time that we had ever directly armed the Ukraine, or was that? Uh, was well, that isn't that a great question? So, I'm so glad that you asked. Would you be interested to know that after Barack Obama's government supported a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis in their violent street putsch in 2014 and overthrew the government, that he was terrified to arm those same Nazis, just like in in Syria, where he did go ahead and arm Al-Qaeda, but he was afraid to carpet bomb Damascus and really give them the full advantage in the war and let them, I mean, after all, America, American air power could have absolutely decimated Assad's regime in a week and Al-Qaeda could have really won that war. Obama knew better than to really go that far, right? Same thing here. Like, well, I guess I'll support these Nazis overthrowing the government, but man, I don't know about giving them javelin anti-tank missiles. So these are going to end up all over the place and I don't know. Um, but then Donald Trump came in and was famously falsely accused of high treason with the Kremlin. And so he spent pretty much four straight years being a Russian hawk in order yeah. to prove what a Russian stooge he was not. And so one of the major things that he did was increase arms to the Ukrainian military and to the really, you know, Nazi based militias like the Azov battalion that fights alongside the Ukrainian military there. And then, you know, I don't know, man, I guess it's getting less funny every time I frame it this way, but it's still just hilarious to me 
I I almost can't believe it, except I do remember it happened this way. You guys correct me if I go off the story here, but the president of the United States, for the third time in our country's history, was impeached. And the indictment was for temporarily holding up an arms deal to these same Nazi-infested Ukrainian armed forces that Barack Obama empowered but was afraid to arm at all. Wow. Obama sent them trucks and sleeping bags and boots and socks. Uh, Trump sent them rangers and missiles and, you know, machine guns. So, um, you know, light arms, but still. And then he temporarily held up an arms deal because he wanted to get the uh, Ukrainian authorities to reopen their investigation into the corruption of Joe Biden's son, who you guys remember, was hired by this Ukrainian gas firm, Burisma, for, get this, $85,000 a month, that's a million dollars a year, to sit on their board of directors. And why'd he do it? Why did they do it? Why did they hire Joe Biden's son? They hired Joe Biden's son because Burisma had been in bed with the previous government that Barack Obama and Joe Biden had overthrown when Biden was the vice president. And we know that Biden was in on that coup. He wasn't just sitting around. He was part of the, you know, running Ukraine policy in the Obama government. And so this gas company was afraid that, oh no, our friends just got overthrown in this American-backed violent putsch. So now how are we going to secure our interests? Well, did they hire the son or the brother of the new prime minister that America had installed in power? No, they went straight to the source, the vice president who ran the coup, and they hired his boy in order to essentially, as insurance, to protect themselves under the new regime. And, and then Biden was on tape bragging that he got the prosecutor fired. And uh, through extorting the Ukrainians that he had to get the, their attorney general dismissed. And he bragged at the Council on Foreign Relations on camera that lo and behold, an hour later, he was fired and uh, uh, they got their money and whatever. Well, now the fact checkers all say that so because all Biden was doing was he was mad that the attorney general was so corrupt. And that was why he wanted him gone. Because And we know that because all the investigations into his son's company there, Burisma, they had all, already been closed anyway. And so Biden couldn't possibly have been saying he wanted the guy fired because he was running these investigations, except that Matt Taibbi, the great journalist who lived in Russia for a few years in the 90s and speaks Russian fluently, got on the phone. I guess maybe speaks Ukrainian. Certainly has friends who do or something. And he got through and did, you know, let his fingers do the walk and made a bunch of phone calls and interviewed a bunch of people over there in the halls of power in Ukraine and found that there were many different investigations into Burisma, some of which were very much active and ongoing at the time that Biden bragged about getting this guy fired. And so um, the, uh, you know, that's the story behind that. That's like the small parentheses, right, is that Biden did this coup. This company hired his son for protection. Then the next president holds up an arms deal to this same country, the same new coup d'etat junta that Biden had put in power because 
he wants the new attorney general that Biden had gotten fired, uh, had, had replaced the guy that Biden had gotten fired to reopen the investigation into Biden's son. Which you got to admit, like, it looks a little bit funny. It's sort of like the Rittenhouse thing. It looks a little bit funny until you recognize clearly who swung first, who, you know, was the initial aggressor, and then you recognize. You know what I mean? So in this case, it sort of looks like Donald Trump is interfering to make this, like, negative, mm -hmm. illegal thing happen. But that's not what he's doing. He's unobstructing justice. He's not obstructing justice. He's trying to unplug the thing and get it back in gear, obviously for his own benefit. But yeah, still, for sure. <laughs> there's clearly, you know, laws being broken here. So, you know, they're the ones who are obstructing justice. Joe Biden was the one obstructing justice. Donald Trump was the one trying to kick it back into gear again. Um, and they impeached him for that, for holding up an arms deal to the Nazi infested armed forces of Ukraine until he could get an investigation into what we all know is 100% guilty, felonious, corrupt, uh, you know, business here by the vice president and his boy. The whole thing is completely crazy. Anyway, I'm off on this tangent, but it just goes to show you how completely <laughs> wow. nuts the way this business is run. It is. It's just, um, yeah. But anyway, um, where were we? There's not going to be a war, I don't think, guys. That's good. When you say Nazi infected, like, can you go into exactly what that means? Because, like, I hear Nazis. Sure. Uh, clearly, we're Nazis yeah. right now and by American standards. I know it. Listen, I mean, and a lot of people, um, I forgot who was joking that Nazi just means, like, a Midwestern Republican who doesn't want his kid, his son to be turned into a woman or whatever, you know, like whatever, like insane. Like I was, I was joking. Anybody to the right of Angela Davis, you know, is a, is a fascist. Um, you know, these, these words do have meaning. And in America, when you say neo-Nazis, mostly you're talking about prison gangs and, you know, some small groups in the South, but they're mostly like shoeless, shirtless dudes out in the woods who have no power and aren't really doing anything to anybody. Maybe they do local crimes, or, you know, sell drugs and rub banks and stores and whatever, little stuff. Um, there, you know, there's not much of, of really a, a Nazi movement in America. Even if you look at like, you know, the major militias, they don't fly swastikas and stuff like that. The Proud Boys and the, and the Three Percenters and the Oath Keepers. They're not avowed Nazis. They're avowed constitutionalists. Whether they really are or not, you could argue. But they're avowed little R Republicans, not fascists. You know, um, and, and, you know, again, whether you, you want to argue about what your standards or what you think they really believe and how they act and whatever is one thing. But it's still, that is their belief. I mean, Oath Keepers means you took an oath to this constitution. Well, this constitution does not describe a fascist state. You know, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, but so anyway, in Ukraine, it's different. You know, in Ukraine, uh, when you're talking about Nazis, you're talking about actual Nazis. Like, in a way, they're not even neo-Nazis. They are the grandsons of the Galatian SS who fought in World War II. Now, you guys know that the Soviet Union, the communist Soviet Union, dominated Ukraine before World War II. And when, you know... And at various times, you know, they had Stalin had had perpetrated the Holodomor, uh, you know, this kind of semi Holocaust on Ukraine in the 1930s, essentially stole all their grain to feed all the Russians that he was moving to the factories and just let all the Ukrainians lay down and die and had moved large Russian speaking populations into the country and all this stuff. Um, 
And then when the Nazis invaded during World War II, they were greeted by some, particularly in the far west of the country, um, you know, where people were ethnically and linguistically Ukrainian and not and and much less Russian. They were welcomed as liberators uh, to come and drive the commies out. Now, a lot of people, you know, regretted that pretty quickly. Being occupied by the Nazis is also no picnic. And but they organized while they were there. They organized this group called the Galatian SS. It may have already existed before they got there. I don't know the exact origins of the group. But that was what they called the the local Nazi group that they created and oversaw as their auxiliaries in Ukraine and who did perpetrate the Holocaust against Jews and Poles. And in one very famous case, and then I'm pretty sure this was in the town of Lviv, where they rounded up tens of thousands of Jewish men, women, and children, you know, down at this creek and machine gunned them like over the course of a three-day weekend kind of thing and massacred them all. Um, so then, of course, the Soviets won that war and kicked the Nazis right back out again. And so, but you have, you know, in America, you have literally not even figuratively, but like quite literally by the definition, you have people who are Republicans, little r, Republicans and Democrats, not just the names of those parties, but like with real meaning, that's what they favor to great degrees, you know, here and oh, and but they call each other commie and Nazi, right? Yeah. But here, <laughs> where, when they call each other commie and Nazi, they really mean it. And uh, like I saw this thing where the headline was like, group of thugs, a uh, group of Nazi thugs beat up old woman. And you're like, what? And then you look and the old woman had come to lay flowers at the feet of a statue of Vladimir Lenin. And that was who the Nazis were beating up. Not that I'm justifying that, but yeah. I'm saying it wasn't a statue of FDR or, or Jimmy Carter, right? It was a statue of Lenin that she was laying the flowers at the feet. So in other words, these people, when they have hard feelings about this history, they went through the history of World War II in a way that we just did not. You yeah, know what I mean? those wounds um, are still, yeah, fresh. Yeah, that's right. So, we yeah, didn't experience that kind of. That's right. And and look, and the communists were really bad. I mean, my wife grew up in Ukraine or, you know, she left when she was a child. But she grew up, you know, her first approximately 10 years of life in Ukraine in the battle days of the Soviet Union. And, you know, when right wingers say that, in, in Soviet communism, that it was an absolute totalitarian police state, a terror state. That is no hyperbole. That is absolutely true. I mean, it was an absolute, you know, totalitarian nightmare living in that country and, and what the communists and, and what the Russians had done in a way. I mean, to a great degree, the Soviet empire was the Russian empire in Eastern Europe. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, there's, it makes sense why many Ukrainians would sort of look at themselves as the Palestinians and the Russians are the Israelis, you know, constantly after their ass and they're kind of the little guy and the underdog and all that. You know, I wouldn't completely discount that. Again, the reason that the East is so strongly Russian is because Stalin made it that way with force by deporting the people who live there and replacing them with somebody else, you know, and that kind of thing. Now, a lot of that is just might as well be ancient history when you're talking pre-World War II. I mean, it just, it is what it is. We've had generations go by there of people who were born there and all of that. So it's, it's very, you know, as they say, special circumstances, unique and special circumstances 
the way that this thing goes. And and by the way, so this is a segue into the topic of the peace deal that they had after the fighting in 2014 and 15 in the East after the coup and the people in the Russian speaking East in the far East refused to respect the new coup d'etat junta and this, and then Kiev invaded. And there was this terrible war that was fought for about a year and a half. And then they had these two different peace deals, Minsk one and Minsk two. And Frankly, you know, I'm not the world's greatest expert on this, but my best understanding is, I don't even think this is controversial, guys, is that it's the Kiev government that has not lived up to their promises in the Minsk II deal. And that, you know, the government of Ukraine, which they had promised to allow and, you know, to officially recognize this whole other level of autonomy for the uh, for Donetsk and Luhansk there in the Donbass province, as they call it, in the far east of the country. And that has not really happened. They've kept fighters, you know, backing militias against them and this kind of thing. Oh, and I'm sorry, I went off track there with, you know, to, to bring it to the current day about the Nazis. Um, when they did the putsch in 2014, it was, I mean, to tell the long story short, the only reason they were able to actually do a coup and succeed in the thing, it was not because of people power out there in the street. It was because of these Nazis groups like the right sector and the Svoboda party, which means truth. They used to be called the social nationalists. Get it? You know, the mm. Nazis backwards. Um, and, um, and, you know, these groups were the ones who, you know, brought violence to the Maidan protest movement and provoked violence by the police. And then it was also some of their same men. And also I think there were professional mercenaries brought in to fire on the crowds and, you know, on their own side in order to drive the crowds into a frenzy. And, and who knows you know, how many CIA agents. <laughs> yeah. 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 People backed by them for sure. And yeah, yeah CIA assets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so now Obama himself, and I only found this out recently, or if I knew this, I had forgotten, but someone on Twitter pointed out that Obama himself, Brad, like there's a direct quote of Obama saying, yes, we engineered the transition to a new government in Ukraine. There you have it right there, horse's mouth. They did the coup. And what yeah. they did was they, they essentially made a deal with the Russian leaning president Yanukovych that said, you pull all your police back and promise that you'll agree to new elections, which was soon like he agreed. I think it was for in April or May, just a few months away. They would hold new elections if he would pull his police back then they would pull the protesters back. And he agreed to that. And there was even a clip, I forget the exact words now, but there was a video clip of the German minister, obviously working for the Americans here and threatening the Ukrainian government officials that you better accept this deal or you're gonna face a lot worse kind of thing. I forgot the exact words of it, but really cementing it, forcing them to do it. As soon as they signed the deal and pulled the police back, the rioters didn't pull back. The rioters seized all the government buildings and chased the guy right out of town. And as you say, with the CIA, there is really the National Endowment for Democracy. And then these various, you know, so-called uh, non-governmental organizations um, like the Freedom House, which is run by George Soros and some others. I forgot the name of the there's two or three groups that are financed by Pierre Omidyar, the guy that runs the Intercept, that owns the Intercept, mm -hmm. um, was also involved in that. And so. <clears throat> that was the thing. And then when the war broke out, the Azov Battalion, who proudly fly swastikas and, and Vulse angles 
you'll see it looks like an N with a line through the middle of it kind of thing. And this is called the Wolf's Angle, which is a, a Nazi emblem from World War II. In fact, you guys have probably seen the viral picture of the guys training the little old lady on an AK-47 um, going around. Um, and then, but you look in the background, there's the guy has got the Nazi emblem of the Wolf's Angle on his arm. This is the mm. Azov Battalion. And their founder had said, look, you know, their purpose in the world was to lead Ukraine to rid the world of the Jewish-led Untermenschen and all of this stuff. Like, these guys are outright Hitler-loving Nazis. They don't disguise it one bit. If you type in Svoboda Party's, uh, the name of Svoboda Party's leader, um, Oleg Tannenbach, the first thing you see is there he is with his Hitler salute in the air and SS lightning bolts behind him. Um, Andre Perubi, who was one of the leaders of the Svoboda Party, was the Speaker of the Parliament for like three years after the coup, four years after the coup. So they're, you know, I'm not saying it's a Nazi government. I mean, their first prime minister, in fact, their current prime minister is Jewish. So I'm yeah. not saying like it is a Nazi government, but I'm saying it's Nazi infested and especially yeah. their armed forces and, and militia forces out there doing the dirty work. And by the way, too, they've had riots where the Nazis like right sector brought all their, you know, forget these tiki torch parades with these kids in khakis and polos. These guys, when they do a torch lit parade at night, it's some scary stuff, man. They show up, surround the parliament building, and they go, we did the coup last time that put you in there. We can do a coup again and put you out. And then the new government is essentially hostage of these groups. Yeah. And, you know, whatever they do, they got to not piss them off too much anyway. And so, so do you think that keeps the hostility between Ukraine and Russia? I like think they it doesn't help at all. You know, in fact, I'll refer you guys to this article in The Intercept, speaking of The Intercept, which was very silent on all of this while it was going on. But they ran one great piece. They were really neglectful on Syria, too, speaking of which. But they ran one great piece about, hey, look, in Ladenite jihadist terrorists, a.k.a. CIA assets in Syria, are now traveling to Ukraine to join up with the Nazis to fight against the Russians. And you see the common thread there is the Chechens. The Chechens went to Syria to help lead the fight there. You got some, you know, very hardened fighters among those Chechens from the wars in Afghanistan and in Chechnya and throughout in the through the Clinton years, the Balkans and the rest. So they came to Syria to help lead that fight. And then they were like, oh, a chance to kill Russians in Ukraine? There's a fight in Ukraine? Great. So they all, and I guess it was the Turks who sent them to Ukraine, and then they linked up with these Nazis to fight against the Russians in the Donbass. And you couldn't make really this stuff up. If I was making this stuff up, you guys would be like, this guy's stupid. Where are we going now? <laughs> but it's true. You can read it and weep. There's, and then they got pictures of them fighting side by side. You know what's fascinating, man, is like, um, obviously not all Muslims, but some, some particular Muslims have always sort of had... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they've worked with the Nazis before, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the Nazis in Palestine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they, the Zionists work with the Nazis to get to Palestine first. And then, yes, there were some, you know, Palestinians who, you know, I think this is mostly a matter of propaganda from the Israelis, but it's not like the Palestinians ever did anything. But they talked with Hitler about like, yeah, what we could do about our Jewish problem too, or whatever it was. But meanwhile, it was Hitler who had sent at least thousands, if not tens of thousands of Jews to Palestine in the first place. Um, hilariously, 
about four or five years ago, Benjamin Netanyahu blamed the Palestinians for the Holocaust and said that it was the Palestinians who convinced Hitler to do it. And then the entire, you know, historical, you know, society in Israel just shouted him down and made him apologize and say that that just wasn't true. That's a hell of a statement. It's been great <laughs> propaganda for the people who like to believe that stuff on the Israeli right. Yeah. It's a good excuse to continue stealing these people's land and oppressing them and pretending like they're the victims when they're the aggressors. So I read an article today about, uh, I think it happened today uh, or yesterday. I don't know. Uh, but I just read that the Biden administration just shut down a pipeline that was supposedly going to come maybe from Israel to Europe. And that was supposed to uh, kind of take um, Europe's, uh, reliance on russia for oil and um he just shut that down why do you think he would do that because that almost empowers the russians doesn't it i don't know that one i don't think okay. israel is the gas exporter right now i mean they were going to build a pipeline that was maybe going to go through israel i i don't remember i, I have to find that article okay i'm sorry i don't know I, honestly man there's so much going on right now i can't keep up and i'm yeah it's crazy anti-war.com yeah. i still can't keep up yeah and one reason so what do you think about this one reason why i think that this might all be sort of just a giant distraction is i mean i sort of feel like i i don't think that they're all on a one team but they sort of are like I, I just watched a video not that long ago about uh this was klaus schwab and i'm trying to remember what year this was, maybe it was like 2000, I don't remember, but he talked about uh, how uh, he was talking about the young leaders, right? And mm -hmm. so this was the CFR and that Tony Blair, uh, Angela Merkel and Vladimir Putin all were part of this young leaders initiative. Hmm. And they're all kind of, they were all taught to, um, well, economically play ball with the CFR. And so I almost mm -hmm. feel like and he said that Vladimir Putin was a part of that. That doesn't. That's what he right. said. Yeah, I can yeah. send you the video after this. It's fascinating. I have to yeah. see that. I mean, Vladimir Putin was already a fully grown ass man before the Soviet mm -hmm. Union. He would have been forty one when that yeah, happened. He was yeah, the bureaucrat for the KGB. You know, in Eastern Germany at the time. Yeah, he would have been, I think, still in the KGB when that happened. Yeah, it was very, it was odd. It, the article I read about it pointed that out and said, I don't know how that's possible, but there's a video of Klaus Schwab saying it, which is interesting. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, how far along do they pick those people out? Maybe they had picked Vladimir Putin out. And they're like, this guy is going to be a good leader after, like this guy will play ball or something. I have no idea. I don't, I don't even know how Vladimir Putin came to power. I, I don't yeah, know enough well, history about that at all. Yeah, yeah, well, what happened was Bill Clinton and the CIA worked with the Saudis to back a bunch of Chechen terrorists who started a war. And Putin was put in charge of crushing the insurgency. And they happened twice in 97 and in 1999. And then after he was successful for the second time in 1999, he built up his credibility as a war hero, you know, Andrew Jackson style. And, um, you know, the sick and ailing and alcoholic Boris Yeltsin went ahead and named him prime minister. Um, in I think early 99, so the whole year to be the prime minister of the Duma. And then on new year's 99, Yeltsin resigned and named Putin to replace him. And the presidential election was going to be in March, three months later. 
but now Putin had this huge head start as being president for three months already, you yeah. know, before the thing. And he's been essentially in power ever since. He stepped down for a couple of years to go be prime minister of the Duma again and allow one of his protégés, a guy named Dmitry Medvedev, to take over for him for four years. And that was in the early Obama years. And then he came back quickly because Hillary suckered Medvedev into supporting the UN resolution to authorize the war in Libya. And then she made a complete chump out of him by changing that, you know, protect civilians with a no-fly zone over Benghazi resolution and said, mm -hmm. well, hey, if you're going to protect civilians, you got to do a regime change in Tripoli, right? Everybody knows that and launched a massive nine-month air war, regime change war. And so made a complete chump out of Medvedev for going along with that. And so he was gone after only four years and Putin came back. So... I was he was blowback in the first place. And look, Bill Clinton rigged the Russian election of 1996. So Yeltsin would not have even been there to appoint Putin to be in charge of crushing the Chechen insurrection that Bill Clinton was supporting if he uh, hadn't intervened in 96. So, you know, every bit of this is all just blowback all the way back. Yeah. You know, and by the way, guys, I'm going to interview. I'm so excited about this. I hope nobody scoops me because it's only Tuesday night. But uh, good luck getting a hold of her. But on a Friday, I'm going to interview Ann Williamson. And she is the Wall Street Journal reporter who you type in that name and, and uh, Russia testimony. And you can read her testimony before the U.S. House of Representatives explaining how in the Clinton years they waged this horrible economic war against Russia. And they sent, it wasn't sanctions. It was, they sent what were called the Harvard Boys Larry Summers and um, Jeffrey Sachs and a few of these other guys over there, Robert Rubin, to go over there and teach these people capitalism. Well, I mean, you can tell right there from the names I just named. These are not, you know, free market guys, right? These are total crony capitalist, neoliberal, you know, Bill Clintonites, right? These aren't never even mind like if they were freaking like Phil Graham Republicans, at least they would, you know, know and care a little bit about markets and all that kind of thing. Instead, these guys were just, you know, I'm sure it was all quite deliberate that what they did was they induced a hyperinflation and completely destroyed the Russian currency and therefore the savings of anyone who had their savings in Russian currency completely, essentially like Pol Pot or something, like yeah. year zero. We're going to reduce everything to nothing and start over again. Only these are the anti-communists. After the communists left, these are the Americans who come to give you shock therapy and teach you about the free market. But then what ends up happening? They take all of the Soviet-owned, government-owned industry, all that private property, and they turn it over to just a handful of KGB criminals at the expense of the entire population of the country. These yeah. bogus voucher schemes and all of this stuff. And so in other words, I mean, kicking them while they're down isn't even apt. You know, it's dropping a J-dam on their head while they're down. And, you know, the, the uh, life expectancy was reduced by double digits. Imagine this. After the fall of communism, life expectancy fell double digits for the population of Russia across the board. And that was because of not free market capitalism, but because of the Bill Clintonites, neoliberal, you know, you want to talk about fascism. There you go. You know, this corrupt, yeah. lonely state corporatist system 
where they just completely screwed everybody. And this is a big part of Putin's rise to power too. When he came to power, he essentially arrested all these oligarchs and handed all their stuff over to his own oligarchs, you know, but at least, you know, these, the guys that he kicked out were essentially in bed with the Americans and the Israelis doing all this at Russia's expense. Putin turned all these interest industries and things over to oligarchs who would stay in Russia and build them up, not just liquidate them and flee the country, but would stay in Russia and build them up. And yeah, they could have their money too. So he is very corrupt. It is still an oligarchy, but you know, this will get me in trouble, but I don't give a shit. Justin Romando wrote back, you know, 10 years ago, he wrote a piece called Putin, the Patriot. And it was about how the Americans hate this guy's sorry guts because he stands up to them. It's not because he's evil. It's not because he's Stalin. It's not because he wants to conquer Eastern Europe. It's only because he won't bow down to the wishes of the American empire. And he's willing to stand up for the interests of his own country. And there's really nothing that they can do about it because he's got about 7,000 H-bombs. That's what I was going to say. It's really interesting. The ones that get away with it, because it's always the one that, you know, that don't do exactly what we say, like Gaddafi, like Saddam, they'll, they'll get taken out. But it's the little, it's the little countries like North Korea. They have a nuke now. We're not taking him out. And Russia, I mean, good luck, you know, invading that landmass. And And of course he's got... Even Iran, they don't have nuclear weapons and they're not trying to make nuclear weapons. And everybody who ever told you the opposite, that is a damn liar or a damn fool. But what do they have? They have a latent nuclear capability. They've proven they know how to enrich uranium. And that if it really came down to it and they had to dig themselves a tunnel deep under a mountain somewhere, they could make an atom bomb. And so it's like they've shown the world. We have a revolver in one pocket and bullets in the other. Don't they make also us have this gun. And that's been enough to keep America at bay this whole time. Yeah. Just proving your point even further. Saddam Hussein goes, we don't have anything. Everybody knows that. Tanks roll right in. You yeah. know, Gaddafi goes, look, I got some centrifuges, but you can have them. Tanks, you know, air war starts seven years later. The bombardment begins, you know. And so, yep. yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The lesson is learned here. The North Koreans. You know, the Bush administration went poking them in the chest four or five times. I said, forget it. Fine. We'll make nukes. We yep. believe you that you're threatening us before. We didn't think you were coming. Now you think we might. Now we think you might be. So we're going to make we're going to make nukes and guarantee that you won't. And now here we are 20 years later. Yep. Yeah. It's a Mexican standoff. Yep. <laughs> So I had another quick question. As you were talking about that, you were talking about how we, um, Angela, what's her name? Merkel. Oh, no, 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 no. no. uh, I'm sorry. The lady that you're going to interview. What's her, what was her name? Oh, I'm sorry. Ann Williamson. Ann Williamson. Like Uh you were talking about how they uh, like did basically uh, like economic warfare on the Russians. right? Right. It's, it's funny to me uh, that very much like that. And then we also, have seen the lesson um, from the Russians in Afghanistan and things like that, that we run straight head on into those things. Like, like if we know, like we know what inflation is going to do, we know what crazy printing money is going to do. And we know what these endless wars are going to do to us. Why are we doing it? It's like, we're jumping on a grenade. Yeah. Listen, I mean, this is why I was a conspiracy kook in the 1990s. I was like a new world order guy. Yeah. 
you know, I really like reading the John Bircher stuff about the one world government under the United Nations and all that. I was never really a right winger, but I thought that that was the grand design, as G. Edward Griffin called it. And my reasoning essentially was, that, look, man, if I'm a stupid cab driver, skateboarder kid, and I know, and not only do I know, but I know that everybody knows that all empires fall. If you want to, if like when we're kids and we just think America's going to last forever, the Bill of Rights is going to last forever, hundreds of years into the unforeseeable future, right? If, if that's just the way it's going to be, we can't build a world empire. If you want to preserve what we've got here, you're just going to mm. burn yourself out like a strip of magnesium or whatever, right? You want to, you want to last for the long haul. You got to be prudent. As I'd rather be Switzerland. Right yeah. when he was not being prudent and he was announcing the new world order, he was the one, you know, saying though, that. And look, you know, the conspiracy theorist Bible used to be anyway, is this history of the 20th century or the first half of the 20th century called Tragedy and Hope, a history mm -hmm. of the world in our time by Carol Quigley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if, I think this is just from the preface or the, the introduction at the beginning, the tragedy is that all empires fall. And the hope is that people will listen to Carol Quigley and that they will preserve their republic and not let it turn into a massive overextended empire, which always end up dying by suicide. And so that's the tragedy and hope. That's what he meant by that. The hope was that essentially we would all be good conservatives and that we would conserve our republic and, and you know, um, for the long haul, and that we would eschew the opportunity to exploit all of the power that we had. Um, and so, um, but the thing of it is, so, so this is why I was a kook was because I thought that if I know this, then everybody with power knows it too. And they're doing it on purpose, mm -hmm. right? Henry Kissinger and all of these guys, the masters of the universe, they've built this, the architecture of this global state. But they know that ultimately America cannot afford to enforce it all on everyone. And it's going to cost us our own independence eventually. And, uh, you know, when when our country crashes down far enough, as the rest of the world is, you know, getting richer over time as they adopt more market capitalism and America gets poorer as we become more commie, that then eventually we'll get taken over like this. G. Edward Griffin is right. It's all the big grand design and whatever, whatever. But the thing is, that's not really right at all. And the real answer is the reason all empires fall is because the people in charge of them refuse to acknowledge that fact while they're the ones driving it into the ground. And that's why they all fall. It ain't because some secret skull and bones conspiracy of treason in favor of some foreign power. Oh, Russian or Chinese or some other troops are going to occupy America and make us the colony of some other some global federal power. That's not what it is, dude. It's not what it is. The New World Order, all it ever meant when H.W. Bush said it was the American Empire ruling overall, maybe with the fig leaf of the baby blue United Nations as pretended legitimacy in the name of human rights and the rule of law and all of that. But essentially, it's the same old empire, just like all of them. And look who's in charge of it. You think Anthony Blinken is sitting around going, yes, this is how I will destroy America by deliberately spending too much money on overseas adventure. No, he's just a stupid, short-sighted, narrow-minded prick, right? He's he's Mike Pompeo, but in the Democratic Party. Um, 
And, and he's one of these guys, just like Mike Pompeo, just like all of them, just like Condoleezza Rice and Susan Rice before them, right? Uh, people who they think they know everything to such a degree, they can't really be told nothing. And they certainly can't be told that, listen, this is suicide. We can't afford to do this. You know, yeah. we try to, for example, invade and occupy Mesopotamia. It's going to be a fatal self-inflicted wound on our society. Think anybody told W. Bush that? That W. Bush, geez, I know it seems like we have unlimited power to do whatever we want in the world, but actually there really are limits. How much money we can print, how much debt we can go into, you know, how many bases in the world we can occupy for the price, man. And nobody told him that. Yeah. Paul I Wolf mean, he had I mean, the Cheney example said, of father. Don't matter. That was yeah. Dick Cheney himself said, you know, Paul Wolfowitz said the war is going to pay for itself. Right. These guys, yeah. they believe their own BS. And, and that's that's how they have succeeded in stabbing America in our own guts in this way. You know, that's really fascinating. And I, I think you're I think you're right, man. And I was just thinking about George W. Bush. He was like he had the example of his father, how easy it was for his father to take Iraq, you know, like that. And so why wouldn't he think he could take everything in the whole world? And then he had, uh, you know, Dick Cheney that you know, used to work for Raytheon whispering in his ear, you know, like, yeah, of course we can do this. Let's sell some more weapons, you know, you know, and so, yep. That's um, sense. Yeah. absolutely right. And kind of, I think what I was thinking while you were saying this, it was like, it just made me think of Hans Hermann Hoppe, the democracy, the God that failed. Um, just thinking about the, you know, how the government, whoever's in charge right now, it's all short term. So they're thinking about their own pockets. They're thinking about their own, you know, and so that's why they do what they do because they don't actually care about the future. They know they're going to be gone in four, eight years. So mm -hmm. they're just trying to that's get in where they fit in. And that's such a huge point, man. You know, I really should study. I need to like stop time for a summer and catch up on all my reading. But I know like there's this whole great uh, area of libertarian study called public choice theory. And that a, a big part of it anyway is essentially recognizing what you just said, that there is no national interest as you or I might conceive of it sitting in the living room talking about what we think is good for the country, that ultimately these decisions are made by individual human men and women, and they make these decisions for reasons that are good for them to make them. And oftentimes, even if they're really, really, really are trying hard, it's very difficult for them to separate their own personal beliefs and opinions and passions from what is really in the best interests of the United States. And things can always just be rationalized. Um, and I think, you know, there really isn't, I mean, if there's a grand strategy to our Middle East policy, it's just do whatever the Israelis say. But then I think they've got the same problem. I think their policy is completely incoherent and just makes essentially very little sense. I mean, there was a time during, I mean, the whole thing was completely nuts. But there was one period of time during Barack Obama where, the caliphate, the Islamic State, ISIS caliphate, had already conquered all of Western Iraq. And so now we weren't pretending that they're moderate rebels anymore. Now they are bad guys, and we've got to smash them in Iraq. And in fact, we'll smash them in eastern Syria with by backing the Kurds against them. But the other jihadists who are just al also Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but just the Syrian-dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq instead of the Iraqi-dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, 
We're still backing them. America's still backing them. Donald Trump didn't cancel that program till June of 2017, six months into his first year. Obama, look, freaking Mosul fell in June of 14 to ISIS. Obama launched the war against them in August of 14. The next year, he still, through 15 and 16, he's still backing them on the Syrian side of the line. And when, and first of all, he's got the CIA still backing the Al-Qaeda guys, but even when ISIS was invading the city of Palmyra in 2015, the Americans held back and let the convoy just roll right in. They could have carpet bombed them off the face of the earth on the road, all lined up like that and white, bright white trucks could have just finished them off and said they let, they and they admitted it, they let ISIS take over this town because they didn't want to um, free, if they had bombed them, then that would have freed up Syrian army forces to go up to the Idlib province to help fend off the assault by Al-Qaeda and Arar al-Sham in the Idlib province, which guys think back two weeks ago, what happened? America went and hunted down and killed the, the current leader of ISIS. Where was he? Hiding out in the Idlib province, in the Al-Qaeda safe haven of the Idlib province that they took in the spring of 2015, back when Obama was refusing to bomb Palmyra or bomb the ISIS forces as they advanced on Palmyra because that would have freed up Syrian forces to keep Al-Qaeda out of Idlib. And you can't make this stuff up. It's completely crazy. And the thing is, I think a big part of what's behind it is that, well, listen, Susie got her way in Syria. So now Jason gets to have his way in Iraq and he thinks we should do this instead of that. And you have like essentially, you got to picture it, right? Obama and his people and those two stupid little couches in the Oval Office where they all sit and talk about this and, and just think about the peer dynamics. They're like, oh, no. Hillary Clinton just walked in the room. Now everybody has to shut up and let her talk. And boy, if you cross her, you're going to pay later. And what, right? So like all the incentives, uh, uh, the best story of this is how they got into the war in Libya, where, I mean, look, we just got out of Iraq War II and everybody knew in intelligence circles and whatever, they, they knew, pardon me, there were a bunch of Libyans who had gone to Iraq to fight with Al-Qaeda in Iraq against the Americans there. Now here they come back to Libya and start a war and Obama takes their side. Why is that? Well, because Samantha Power, who was this journalist, Democrat, you know, humanitarian interventionist, former journalist, she'd been in the Balkans and she wrote a book called The Problem from Hell about how in these crappy third world countries, a lot of times there are horrible massacres and things, and that America should have a rapid reaction force in the name of humanitarianism to go and intervene in all these places. So that like what happened in Bosnia and what happened in Rwanda and so forth would never happen again. And America be, you know, Christopher Reeve as Superman, uh, the Boy Scout, you know, over saving the day all the time. Well, never mind anything that we learned about war in the Middle East during Iraq War II, okay? Forget that, never happened. That was W. Bush and his stupid, uh, you know, team of goofballs and idiots. Now this is the Obama years and all that Bush stuff just doesn't count. And so here the Arab Spring breaks out and in Libya, Gaddafi vows to crush the uprising. 
and which is a violent uprising. It's not like in Egypt where it's a peaceful protest movement. In Libya, it's a violent uprising. And Gaddafi says, well, I'm going to crush the uprising. And, and Samantha Power says, now's my chance to make a name for myself. And what had happened was in the campaign of 07, 08, uh, when it was Obama versus Hillary in the primary, she had made the political mistake of calling Hillary, calling Hillary Clinton a monster. So then when Obama wins, he names Hillary secretary of state. I think power thought maybe she'd get that job, right? Well, Obama names Hillary secretary of state. So what does that make power? That means power is then relegated to a deputy spot on the national security council in the white house. And in her words, is relegated to doing this do-gooder, rinky-dink stuff like advocating for Christians in Iraq. You know, do-gooder, rinky-dink, unimportant stuff like that. So she wants some attention. She figures she's done her penance uh, for criticizing Hillary Clinton. Now it's the beginning of 2011, two years into the, into the uh, Obama administration. She's done her time on the NSC doing her do-gooder rinky-dink stuff. Now she wants a raise and a promotion and some attention from the president. And this is her chance. So what we're going to do is we're going to pretend to believe that Gaddafi is not putting down an insurrection. No, Gaddafi has now decided to murder every last man, woman, and child in the city of Benghazi. It's just like Rwanda. So now... Instead of the war on terrorism, now we are going to outright side with the Libyan veterans of Al-Qaeda in Iraq in the name of preventing Gaddafi from massacring them and everyone nearby them, which they knew was a total lie at the time, that they just knew that this wasn't going to happen. The DIA and the CIA and everyone was telling the Obama government that they're not going to do that. That's not what they're doing. Uh, Gaddafi sent 2,000 men to Benghazi. How's he going to massacre 700,000 people with 2,000 men? And when most of them had already fled anyway, because it was fighting and they're civilians, so they fled. Um, the whole thing was an absolute hoax. And they told everybody that Gaddafi was passing out Viagra um, <laughs> yeah. to his troops so they could rape every woman and girl Good across Lord. the country. It's a total hoax. Had nothing to do with humanitarianism. Had everything to do with Samantha Power's career. Right. And so Samantha Power went to Susan Rice, her ally, and said, Susan, you got to help me do this. It's my chance to get a promotion and yours, too. Come on, let's do it. So then the two of them went to Hillary Clinton and they convinced Hillary Clinton that this would be a great thing to run on in 2016, that you help get us into this great war to save all the people from the evil tyrant Gaddafi. And so they convinced Hillary Clinton. And then according to multiple reports, which are, I think, quite believable. When they had their little argument in the Oval Office about the thing, Obama's sitting here. He's got couches full of people and then their deputies standing behind him and whatever. And it's Samantha Power, Susan Rice, and Hillary Clinton. Do go to rinky-dink nobody from the National Security Council, the UN ambassador, and the Secretary of State. Right? All three women. On the other side... You have the vice president, Joe Biden, says, no way, let's not do it. You have the secretary of defense, Robert Gates, that Obama had inherited from W. Bush and kept. He says, let's not do this. He later says, 
uh, that he said repeatedly to them, Can I, we're already in two wars. Can't we just finish the two we're in before you get me in a third one? When, in fact, that wasn't right because we were bombing Yemen and Pakistan at the time. He meant to say four wars. Don't get me in the fifth one. But anyway, um, uh, oh, and Somalia, too. So, yes. Yeah, so, sorry. I lose track myself sometimes. But anyway, um, and then you had the National Security Advisor, Dennis McDonough, and his deputy, Ben Rhodes, um, and who was later horrible on Syria. But in this case, uh, apparently had chosen right on Libya. And so you had literally you had the vice president, the secretary of defense, the national security advisor and the deputy national security advisor all saying to Obama, don't do it. And you had these three women who all had their own careers on their mind telling him to do it. And you know that that's why, I mean, you, I'm making this up, but you know it's true, that the reason why Obama did this was as a favor to Hillary Clinton because he bought the argument, too, that this would help bolster her run for president in 2016, that she would have been the one to start this war. And he had already surely promised her if she would become secretary of state that he would support her over Biden for the nomination, that he would convince Biden not to stand in her way for the nomination in 16. And then this was seen as her big ticket. And you can read it. It's not from the Russians or, in fact, whoever, whichever hero leaked the emails to WikiLeaks. It's actually from the BuzzFeed FOIA request where Jason Leopold went and got all these emails from the State Department. And you can see where Hillary Clinton's advisors, like our current uh, Biden's current national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, um, had written all about how this is 100% your war, boss, and you get all the credit. You have complete and total ownership of America's Libya policy from start to finish. And just wait till 2016. You'll be able to run on this and talk about what a badass you are. And then her other advisor, um, Sidney Blumenthal, told her, this is your moment in history. Make sure you have a prepared statement for when the news comes of Gaddafi's demise, even if it's at, in the driveway of your vacation home. You'll have to make a statement. And then that's the origin then of the interview clip you've all seen where they say, hey, we just got word that Gaddafi's been killed. And Hillary laughs and says, we came, we saw, he died. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> that was the great Hillary statement that she had ready. <laughs> that was the prepared statement that she had ready was to laugh and imitate Julius Caesar. She is um, such a monster. <laughs> and so there's your public choice theory, right? Like what yeah. is taking out Muammar Gaddafi have to do with protecting American national interests? Nothing. Absolutely yep. nothing. And Gates later said that Obama told him, you know, my decision to do this was 51 to 49. Well, but what does that tell you, right? I mean, that's nothing less than the confession of a war crime. That's nothing less than him confessing yeah. that... I didn't have to start this completely unnecessary war, but I decided to anyway. We're still There's, feeling the reactions and reverberations from that too. It's right. crazy. Yeah. Just and, so and for all this, <laughs> by the way, for all this shit that, that Bob Gates talks, he ordered the war. He did it. He didn't resign in protest over it. He said, yes, sir, sir. And clicked his heels and slaughtered a few tens of thousands more people in waging that war and didn't resign until months later. And certainly not in protest when he did resign. It was not a protest over the war. He just said, okay, I'm retiring now. That'd be bad for his career. Yeah. That's sick, man. I'm telling you, these people are crazy. You know? Well, all right, my brother. We got you a little over an hour here, and I know I want to be respectful of your time. So, Scott, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Wait, homeboy barely got to ask anything at all. You want to yeah. get in here, man? 
Tony, you got some questions, brother? <laughs> well, okay, I'll ask you that. Um, when you were debating Bill Crystal, were you um, expecting a little bit more of a fight? I, I expected him to get a couple of good jabs in and yeah, nothing. No, I mean, frankly, I wasn't. <laughs> um, because I am very familiar with Bill Crystal, and I knew that he's a lazy bastard. I knew that he says the same thing every time, which is, oh, we kept the peace in the world for 75 years. Nobody ever challenges him on that. I knew that once I did challenge him on that, he wouldn't know what the hell to say to it. And that, you know, I and I knew that he wouldn't even bother putting my name into YouTube to even see who he was going up against or anything like that. He wasn't going to read my book. He's a he boomer. Gonna, I don't no. think he knows how to use. The <laughs> yeah. yeah, like it was in a way like, you know, I accept that people say like, OK, you beat him. But that was, you know, Bill Crystal's absolute weakest and dumbest. And that's a fair criticism. You know what I mean? Like I would, I would, I think I'd do okay up against John Bolton or Mike Pompeo, but I don't think either of them would be total pushovers in the way that Crystal was. You know what I mean? I think Pompeo would fight back, but I don't think he'd win. I think he's yeah. completely full of it. Um, but I, I think he's, um, would be a, a stronger opponent. Hell, even Frank Gaffney or some of them, just because they're such jerks, you know? We're like Bill Crystal, not to say he's not a jerk, but just he's just so lazy and old now. You know what I mean? He just doesn't have it have yeah. a fight in him anymore, I don't guess. He was so, an old vampire and he broke the stake through his heart. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was funny. Um well, I'm still kicking myself over all the stuff I wish I had said. You know what I mean? But I did, you know, by the end of the thing, he said he was anti-war and said he even thought we shouldn't have done Iraq War II. And like, I don't, you know, a lot of the other neocons have, you know, taken back their support for Iraq War II. I think that was the first time that he ever did was, was right there. Um, but um, what I wanted to say to him, like in the last question, I didn't get to ask him was uh, I was going to say to him, listen, now that you're anti-war, maybe we could get you to join our uh, crusade to end the war in Yemen you know, and whatever, which I know the answer would be no, but, you know, I was going to say, you're such an important person in Democratic Party politics now, you know, maybe you could bring this up, something like that. And the thing is, is I said, can I ask him the question? And then Gene goes, no, we're out of time. Just do your last statement. But I could have just asked him the question right there. You know what I mean? Like, look, you don't have to answer. Just, you know, call me later. But, um, but this is the question. Like, now that you're anti-war, like, can we get some anti-war out of you? It'd actually be really great if we could have Bill Crystal, the former Hawk, say, look, I was wrong. And this one that we're doing in Yemen right now, we really should stop. And like, I don't think he would have gone for it, but it would have been nice to give him the opportunity to. You know what I mean? Yeah. So sure. there's a couple things like that. But but no, I do think that he's basically a, a fat, lazy, stupid idiot who, you know, was never going to be able to put up much of a fight there, frankly. You know, and he didn't do much worse than I expect. I guess I expect him to do a little bit better than that. I didn't expect him to just give up and stay in his seat and like refuse to even, you know, there are two or three different times where Gene goes, well, Bill, you want to respond to that? And he goes, ah, whatever. <laughs> it like, was oh, sad. Hey, dude. Yeah. yeah. You know? 
I'm, I'm just really happy that neoconservatives seem to not have as much power or influence like currently as they used to. And I'm just thinking about it. It's just the most incoherent philosophy. It's just they want to have some form of like conservatism at home. They want to have like a strong empire and then they want to overreach and spend too much money at the same time. And it's just it's insanity. Yep. Makes they actually believe money. it. It's delusional. Yeah, um, you know, there was this documentary years ago called World War Four. I think I still have it somewhere. I have some audio clips from it, at least. Um, and it was like a former Bush campaign guy who got disillusioned and made this documentary. And he went and interviewed Michael Ledeen. And there's a clip of Michael Ledeen saying, why are we called neoconservatives? I don't know. I mean, I'm for world revolution. There ain't nothing conservative about that, man. We're radicals. We want to change the whole world from what it is now and how we want it to be and all of that. I agree with you. It's stupid that we're called conservatives. You know, we're hawks, but that doesn't make us conservative. Mm -hmm. You know, we're radicals. We want to turn the world upside down. He was the guy that wrote a National Review over and over again. It was like an ongoing series in National Review. Faster, please. More regime changes in more countries right now. Let's invade, you know, Lebanon and Iran and Syria and hell. Jordan and Saudi, let's let's get them all going. Let's just start as many civil wars as we can. We'll turn the Middle East, as he put it. I swear to God, you can find it, Google it in quotes. Turn the Middle East into a boiling cauldron. And then, you know, when we're done with that, it'll be what we want it to be at the end and all this and that. That's the part where, where it never makes sense. It's like, we're going to cause a bunch of chaos we're going to rile everything up we're going to shake this you know thing of bees and then it'll be what we want like you know it, what that reminds me actually i made a bumper <laughs> sticker in 2004 or 2003 or four i guess four i said what's so conservative about world revolution and it had a picture of all the neocons on it you know oh well so yeah, these guys yeah. come from the trotskyite left you know the only thing yeah. that made them conservatives was they sided with the right against the soviet union because they hated stalin yeah right? But yeah. that was just because they were a different kind of commie than him, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so then they ended up moving right and became Reaganites and, and you know, not exactly uh, communists anymore, but not exactly conservatives either. As you're saying, the real conservatives, they didn't believe in all of this stuff. And that was the neoconservatives had to make this concerted effort to seize control out of, of all the conservative foundations like Bradley Olin and Scaife and seize the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, and all these things. These people used to be much more wishy-washy on intervention. And then the neocons' mission was to turn them all uniformly into hawks, which they succeeded in doing. But, again, like, yeah, what's so conservative about world revolution? Not much. You know, yeah. that's how you look at it. Well, I feel like the illusionary zeitgeist of the time, people are just not believing in that anymore. Right. So. I mean, boy, is it discredited? I mean, look at the look at the actions. They sent what three or four million guys to Iraq and Afghanistan and back. And then how many of them can say now that they're they believe in the mission and that Bush and Obama did the right thing by doing their surges and escalations and all these things? There's just nothing there. I mean, if you wanna if you're an Iraq war vet, you want to be proud of something, it would be that time you saved your friend from danger over there or something very, very narrow like that. Um, or maybe that time you saved one villager from another or whatever in some limited circumstance. But overall, they destroyed that country, got a million people killed. And then look at the result is, you know, a Shiite theocracy for the East and 
chaos stand for the West still to this day, you know, and, you know, the open question of who's going to end up in charge in Western Iraq. So, uh, and bloody violence and, you know, probably a couple million people killed if you throw in Somalia, Yemen, and Libya, along with Iraq and Syria. Um, yeah. Afghanistan and Pakistan, maybe more, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, Scott, you came, you uh, you destroyed, you conquered. Uh, thank you, sir. We appreciate you. We appreciate your Absolutely. time. Thank you guys very much for having me. Yeah, thank you for all your work. Is there any last minute plugs you want to add or anything you want to want to say? Nah, just uh, read my book enough already. It's out in audio book now, too. That's all the wars from 1979 through right now. And uh, every page will piss you off, I promise. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thanks, guys.